Good morning. How's everybody doing today? That good, huh? There's like three of us that are doing awesome. <laughs> if you're visiting with us today, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the pastors here at Mars Hill, and you've joined us as we're working through the letter of 1 John, this book of 1 John. Now, we have worked through books of the Bible. That's the way that we teach here at Mars Hill is that we take an entire book of the Bible at a time and work through it. And so earlier, uh, a bit back now, we actually worked through the Gospel of John. Same author, right? And we saw the purpose of this Gospel of John that he wrote. John 20, verse 31 tells us, but these are written so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. And so the purpose of the gospel of John was so that we may believe and so that we may have life, right? And when we get to the letter of 1 John, we see John state its purpose in 1 John 5, 13. It says this, I write these things to you who what? Believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see the connection here that the gospel of John is written so that we might believe and as such of believing that we may have life. And then John writes 1 John so that those of us that have responded to the message of the gospel may know that we have eternal life. And so whenever we're studying through 1 John, we have to keep that in the front of our mind, that this letter is written basically laying out the evidence that we are indeed his, that, that we have been redeemed. And now that we have been redeemed, now that we have been transformed by the gospel, who are we? And that's what 1 John is all about, who we are now. And so what John is doing is pointing out these evidences that your life has been changed, this evidence that your life has been transformed. These are the things that are going to show up. And while he's doing that, he's also combating false teaching at the exact same time. The same false teaching that exists today existed then to, to the degree that we had people then as well as now saying that you can have an encounter with Almighty God and leave exactly the same. They, they believed, some people believed that you could have a spiritual experience with God that does not reflect in your physical life, that you can be transformed on the inside, but on the outside you look the same. And what John is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit is no, you cannot. That is impossible, that who you are on the inside is going to flow out of you. And as such, you can tell who you really are on the inside by what flows out of you. It's that whole idea that, that if you plant a seed in the ground, it's going to grow and produce more of what it is. It's not going to grow and produce something different. And so if you are redeemed, if you are transformed, if you have been radically changed by the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you will live that out. And that's what John is saying here. And some of these things that John has talked about has come up over and over and over again. When you read these letters of John, it's like he's spiraling completely out of control. It's like he gets so excited, he starts talking about something. Hey, if you are redeemed, if you are transformed, then this, and he'll start going down the road. And then he says, oh, but I got to come back to this. And then it's like we start all over with a different point on that same topic. And then he does it again. Love is one of these things. 
when John talks about love, he talks about it from multiple angles. He talks about God's love for us. He talks about our love for God. And he also talks about our love for each other. See, a lot of us, when we start thinking about love, we think about our love for God. We think about our, God's love for us, but we stop short of that last essential important point, our love for each other. And John can't help but to keep coming back to this over and over again. John can't help but to keep bringing this up. If we go to chapter 2 in 1 John, which we've already studied in verses 9 through 11, we get to verse 10 and it says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That, that a result of this, that these two things are married, they can't be pulled apart. The love for God and the love of your brother and your sister in Christ, are, is, are, are, they can't be separated. They're inseparable. They can't be pulled apart. When we move to chapter three, John starts the whole chapter with saying, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so what is he saying here? Well, we're going to see more of what John 3 says, but he says that the fact that we can even be called children of God boils down to one thing, love, the love of God. Do you see how important this is? This is a very important topic to the heart of God. And you may say, well, if it was, more, if it was that important, then Jesus would talk about it too. Well, guess what? He does. Uh, think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Have you ever really processed this? Listen to this, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go away. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. Understand this, beloved the way that we interact with each other matters to the heart of God. It absolutely matters. And so whenever we start talking about love, yes, the love of God is paramount. Everything boils down to that. Yes, we should love God, but yes, we should love each other. And that's what John articulates over and over and over again. And so today in our passage, we're gonna look at five specific points. One, we're gonna see this command to love. Now, this passage is going to command us to love. We're also going to see the demonstration of God's love, the, the demonstration. How did he show love to us? We're going to see the result of that, our obligation to love. We're going to see another result of that, our assurance in this love, that we are assured in the gospel. And then we're going to see the results of this love. So let's dive in today. Let's see what the Lord has for us in his word and let's see what the Spirit is speaking to the church at Mars Hill this morning. Because I think that this message is pertinent to us. It's pertinent to the world today. And this matters. So I know that we've talked about love a lot. I know that you've literally now heard, and once we finish today, heard three sermons on love in the last few weeks. I acknowledge that. But if it's important enough for God to continue showing up in his word, it's important enough for us to rehearse this important tenet of the gospel. So here we go, verse 7 of chapter 4, 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
So the first thing we see is this command to love. And there's a lot wrapped up in this first little phrase in verse 7. It's translated, beloved, let us love one another. But when we look at the original text, we actually see two words that have their root in the word agape. We see it actually start in Greek, agapatoi agapomen. And you can translate this, beloved, we should love. But we can also translate it this way. Those who are loved, let us love. Those who are loved, let us love. And what this begins to do is it starts beginning to lay the groundwork of this command to love and the reason that we should love. Understand that we don't love each other to try to gain God's love. We don't love each other to try to get God's approval on our life. We don't love each other because of these things. Scripture tells us that we love each other and we should love each other because of one simple fact, because we are loved. That's the foundation of our love, that we don't love when someone is worthy of our love. We don't love when someone makes us feel good, when we feel like loving one another. We don't love one another when they, someone says something that makes you feel empowered. We don't love during those times. We don't love only when someone agrees with us. That's not when we love. We love, according to scripture, when we're loved. And so if you ever wanted an excuse to hate a brother or sister in Christ, the Bible actually tells you when you can do that. It absolutely tells you when you can do that. You can do that whenever you're not loved by God. Because that's the foundation of our love. But here's the question. When are we not loved by God? When should we love? When we're loved by God, when does God love us? All the time. And if we see God's love as our foundation for love, that teaches us when and how we should love. We should love the way that God does. We should love when God does. We should love. And see, when we, when we look at God, his love is not one of these wishy-washy things. It's a state of being. It's simply who he is. God is love. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us to seek our good. He, he loves us when we're undeserving. He loves us when we're unfaithful. His love contains an emotion, yes, but it's not emotional. It's not based on emotion. It contains that, but it's a state of being. It's who he is. It's not just when we make God feel a certain way that he loves. And see, that's the problem in our society with love, is that we use this word all the time when we don't actually mean it because we don't actually know what the word means. And in our society, very often, when we use the word love... We're using it in a selfish way. We say, I love that person. And usually it's because of the way that they make us feel. It's because of what they do for us. See, our love flips back on us. We love when we gain something from it. But God loves because he loves. And that's how we should love, unconditionally and selflessly, the way that he loves. And the problem with this type of love that humanity has in our sin very often is that it starts out as just this selfish love that makes me feel good. And then we start looking at everyone as someone that we are able to consume for us. Guys, this love is dangerous because it's not love at all. This thing that we call love that's selfish can lead to being used. It can lead to being abused. It can, be le- it can lead to you being seen as, sim- as simply a commodity to be consumed and then thrown away. That is not love. That is not healthy. That is dangerous. 
But when we see what love is supposed to be founded in the gospel, we see what love is. It's the opposite of all of that. It, it's a selfless, unconditional love. When we look at 1 John 2.9, we already saw this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. It goes on to talk about he who doesn't walks in darkness. When we get to John 3, we've already looked at verse 1. But when we get to 10 through 18, it talks about this more and more. And it gives us insight into the way that we should love. Look at this verse 16. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Yes, that's good. The verse stops right there, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is how we're supposed to love. This is what we're called to. This is supernatural, selfless love, only able to be empowered by God. Why? Because God is love. And if the spirit of God dwells in us, remember we talked about seeds earlier, what's going to grow out of us? Love. The fruit tree of God's love is going to be part of our lives, dropping love to everyone around us. That's what John is saying. And these are heavy, heavy words. These are huge words because uh, you, you look at this and, and it's, it, it's indicating that you know your status in Christ based on how you love. But yes, yes, John describes love as like a litmus test. Do you have love for your brother and sister? Yes. Okay, you're in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that every act of love comes from that. Remember that we're made in the image and likeness of God, and there's a remnant of that. And so people are capable of showing genuine love, but this is something different. This is something supernatural. This is a state of being. What we have to understand, church, is that you are not simply forgiven. And you may say, Tommy, you just used the word simply in front of forgiven. You know what I've done? I know what I said. You are not only forgiven. Listen, church, you are also transformed. You are born new. You are born again by God's spirit. And so what that means is that you are forgiven and now empowered by that spirit to live in a way that's totally different than you did before. If I were to ask you, how many of you in this room that are redeemed to live exactly the way that you did when you were lost, I would hope not a single hand would go up. Because you are being transformed, you're being made new, your, your mind's being transformed, the work of the Holy Spirit's in your life, it's, it's moving your life forward, it's moving your life to a way that reflects God, that reflects the gospel. And so that's why John can use this as a litmus test for us. Do you want to know what a gospel-transformed life looks like? It looks like love. That's why he can be so bold to say this. So, so how does this work? Well, look at verses 7 and 8. We get, we get more insight into this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and what? Knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Because God is love. Now, this is interesting because there's several Greek words that can be translated into know or known or knowing in English. But the one here that's used is really, really interesting. It's a word, gnosko. And when you look at this word, it has the weight of knowing. 
but it's not knowing because you're told. In Greek, this is a very, very special word that says knowing by experience. I know something because I've experienced it. I know something not because I've been told, but instead because I've been part of it. It's because I've been part of this action before. It's kind of like if you go to the hospital and you've got to get like knee replacement. You don't want someone that's read it in a book. You want someone that's experienced it, right? That, that's done this before. I want someone that's been engaged in this, right? That they know it based on experience. Whenever we see the Bible talk about those who know God will love because they've known the love of God. If you have experienced the love of God, then your life will reflect that experience, right? And that's what's being said here, is, is that your life will reflect the experience of love that you have had through Christ. The weight of this is absolutely astonishing. The weight of this passage, and this was something that I've chewed on for a couple of weeks now, and honestly, it's, it's brought me to places of tears of joy. It's brought me to places where my heart's been overwhelmed. But what scripture is telling us here is this. It's not that we look at God's love and we imitate it. It's that we have been brought into God's love to be an expression of his love for others. And as I chewed on this, and as I thought through this, I was trying to think of the best illustration that I could come up with, the, the best thing that I could find to articulate this. And, and this illustration falls tragically short. Do me a favor and just take it as face value, because I've destroyed it myself many times over. But listen, we're supposed to love each other because we're supposed to love each other. But we are also supposed to be an expression of God's love for each other. What does that mean? The best that I could come up with is that you are the flowers in God's relationship with someone else. When you, when you come in as a spouse and, and, you, and, and I give my wife something as a gift, I give her a, a token, a piece of something that says, I love you. Guys, that's what we're supposed to be to each other to show the love of God. Guys, did you know that we are given to each other? to love, but we're also given to each other to be an expression of God's love to each other. And that's a beautiful thing. That should do something in our soul. I started thinking about this, and I started thinking about, God, who have you given me as flowers, as tokens to show me your love? And in the first service, I was okay because these people weren't in the room. But I think about um, a couple that's sitting over here to my left that I'm not going to look at. Um, I, I, I could not make it through life without them. I, I know it. I, I know it. And I think of the fact that God has given me the beautiful bouquet of this family to show that he loves me because we walk through everything together. And what does that do? It gives me assurance of God's love because he loved me enough. And we're going to talk about his expression of love in many ways later. But he loved me enough that he showed me his love through his son. And then he said, here, take this. I made this for you. And I know that sounds selfish, but it's the way that I'm thinking about it. I made this to be an expression of my love to you. And guys, this type of love is countercultural. This type of love is different. This type of love 
is according to the gospel of John in chapter 13, 35, this type of love is an apologetic to the gospel. This type of love is different. Look at this. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not if you go to church, though that's a good thing. We've got to come together to love each other. It's not that you pray. It's not that you've memorized scripture. It's not that you have a seminary degree. It's not any of these things. How would the world know? It's by our love for each other. And think about this a minute. This is weighty. This is powerful. How do you know who Superman is? Like, no matter how many different times they recast the actor of Superman, no matter how many times they write a different story, no matter how many times this weird multiverse stuff comes up, we know Superman. Why? Because he has a cape, and he can fly, and can have x-ray vision, and heat vision. How do we know who a first responder is? Because they're going to show up in the fire truck, the police car. They're going to get out in the uniform. How do we know who military is? They're going to show up in their uniform. Here's the question. How do you know who someone is that's redeemed in Christ? It's because they're going to be wearing their super suit. And what is their super suit? Love. That's amazing to me. How, do, how does the world know that you are God's disciples because of the way that you love? That is amazing. It's powerful. It's encouraging. It's convicting. It's all of those things at once. That we are to be a people of love so that the world may know. And this is Jesus' words, not mine. So that the world may know that we are his disciples. That's amazing to me. The next thing we're going to see is the demonstration of his love through his son. The demonstration of his love. Look at verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. So when we look at this, this manifest among us can actually be translated the way that the NASB does it. It can be by this, the love of God was revealed. When we look at these verses, we're actually going to see five ways that God's love was revealed to us in his son. Let's look at these real quick. So in verse nine, we see the first one. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent. That God sent. So the first thing that we see is that God started this process of reconciliation. I mean, in our mind, the guilty person should go to the innocent, right? The guilty person should go to the innocent and say, hey, I messed up. Hey, will you forgive me? Hey, this is my bad, my fault. That's the way that we think about this. But God showed his love for us that he, he initiated reconciliation, that the innocent one, the one that had not sinned against the other, the one that had not raised his fist to the other, is the one that initiates this reconciliation. We are the guilty. He is the innocent, but he started this process. That's how he shows his love. The next thing is in who he sent. He sent his only son into the world. He sent his only son into the world. Now think about this. God didn't send Abraham or Moses to save us, right? 
He, he didn't send any of the prophets. He didn't send angels. He didn't send this. Who he sent matters. Who he sent was a genuine sacrifice. This only begotten word is monogenous. It's of the essence of. There's only one. This is the only begotten son. This is a word that John uses five times. We can even think about it in John 3.16, right? We can quote that. Only begotten son. And so John uses this to indicate something very special, that the sonship of Jesus to God is unique. It indicates that Jesus and the Father are the same substance, the same essential being. And so this was a genuine sacrifice. We know that God loved us because he started the process of reconciliation. We know because of who he sent. Next, the reason that he sent, so that we might live through him. And remember, this is the whole purpose of the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, so that we may know that we have life. But think about this. In Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses. We see throughout all of Scripture that we are dead. Even in John 3.17, we see that we stand already condemned. But God sent, that God sacrificially gave, that God started this process. Why? So that his enemies could have life. That's what scripture says. Think about that. It's not only that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this for the good of my enemy, the one that has raised their fist to me. I'm going to make this sacrifice. That shows love. That shows the love of God. Next, in this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us. So the next thing we see that God's love is evident in the order of this love. Now this kind of ties back to the first, that the first point that he started reconciliation, but understand that God loved us first. It's not that he offered reconciliation and then if we responded well, then he would love us. No, no, no. That this whole process is based on the love of God and that God loved his enemies first. God loves you. And lastly, we see the purpose of this again for the propitiation for our sins. God's love is evident in what this sacrifice does. Whenever we look at the word propitiation, it has two parts to it. One, that the wrath of God is satisfied. That's part of it. And then the other part is that we are reconciled to God. And think about this just a minute. Understand that God's love does not negate all of his other characteristics. God's not like us. God is always love. He is always holy. He is always just. His wrath must always be satisfied, and all of these exist perfectly all the time. And you may say, that doesn't make sense. Well, yes, it does, because think about this. God's wrath against sin had to be satisfied, but God is love. And so what did God do? Well, according to John Stott, he did this. God satisfied himself by substituting himself for us. So what did he do? He, he sent his son to take the wrath of God so that we could be reconciled to him. That shows a wrath that must be satisfied, but it also shows a loving God. Spurgeon said it like this. If there was to be reconciliation between God and man, man ought to have sent to God. The offender ought to be the first to apply for forgiveness. The weaker should apply to the greater for help. The poor man should ask of him who distributes alms. But herein is love that God sent. 
He was the first to send an embassy of peace. Guys, this is the love that we're drawn into, that God first loved. And I've quoted this several times in sermons over the years, and I paraphrased it even more, but this is one of my favorite quotes. If God had merely sent Jesus to teach us about himself, that would have been wonderful enough. It would have been far more than we deserved. If God had sent Jesus simply to be our example, that would have been good too and would have had some value. But the wonderful thing is that God did not stop with these, but rather sent his son, not merely to teach or to be an example, but to die the death of a felon that he might save us from our sins. That's how God demonstrated his love for us. The demonstration of love is in Christ. Next, we see that this expressed love leads us to an obligation, the obligation of love. We see this in verse 11. Look at this. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what is our obligation to God's love there? To love each other, right? To live out that love. Real, genuine love is defined by God's love for us and our responding to that love. To respond to this type of love, we are called to take action. The way that we interact with each other is going to be different. If we are responding to a love that showed it, not just said it, but showed it in action, then our love should be that too. And what that means is that we can't use excuses within the church, We can't look at the person that sits next to us in in the pew on Sunday morning or the person that's across from us in our seat at small group and say, I don't love them because they offended me. If we do that, whose love are we modeling? That type of love is not an apologetic. That type of love is not different than the world. That looks just like the world. We're called to something different, and that's why verse 12 hammers this home. Look at this. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? Just like I mentioned before, no one has seen God, but man, do they see the fruit dropping from our life. See, nobody can see the wind, can they? But they see the results of the wind. Do you see the results of the wind of God's Holy Spirit in your life? Are you living that out? Are you an extension of his love? Have you entered into that? Are you going out and loving? Are you in this room loving in a way that you should? This is what we are called to. This word in this passage, perfected, can actually be translated matured or complete. What this tells us is that when God's love takes root in us, it's going to grow. And when it grows, we have, we're going to respond to that. Like, that's just who we're going to be. We no longer are going to have the root of bitterness and sin in our lives because we are transformed. And what this does is it brings us to assurance. See, we have this obligation to love, but this love of God brings us to a place that we are assured in our love. We're assured by our love, and we're assured in Christ by our love. Look at this, verse 13 says, by this, by what? Well, everything that we've said before, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. What does this mean? 
By this we know, by this love, we know. John is connecting everything to this, that we know because his love is being perfected in us. We don't just hope that we're saved. We don't hope in eternity. We don't hope that God is transforming us. We're literally seeing the ripples of it in our life. And it's just like God. Watch this. This is amazing. When you love others the way that God loves and the way that you should, that does two things. It shows God's love to the other person, and it reiterates in you that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, and you're both encouraged by living out the act of love that God called you to. And that's just the way that God does things. It's our assurance of salvation. This is a great quote on this. Look at this. To believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not conditions by which we may dwell in God, but rather are evidences of the fact that God has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible. What does that mean? It means that when you love in a way that is against your human messed up nature, that it's assurance that God has taken possession of you. Because we can't do that in our own nature. And that is a beautiful thing. Verse 16 goes on to say, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And how great is this to know? How great is it to know, to be assured? It's out of this that Paul writes Romans 8. And this is how we should all be. Look at this. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what does Paul say here? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor ruler, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our assurance. That doesn't need to be just Paul that knows that. That doesn't need to be just Paul that stands on that, that lives in that. Christian, redeemed of God, Christ follower, that assurance is for you. But I messed up this morning. I know, I probably did too. God still loves you. But, but you don't understand that some days I struggle with my faith. Did you know what? Christ still loves you. Did you know that, that, that there are things that I begin to question that I worry about? God still loves you. And when we stand in that, understand that this is what the world desires and needs. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. If you're old enough, you know the song, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? But, but understand this, that this is our assurance. We don't have to question. We don't have to be in fear. Spurgeon said this, to feel God's love is very precious. And man, it is. And I love those moments. But to believe it when you don't feel it is the noblest. What does that mean? It's what we said before. This love is not an emotion. It has emotion in it, but it's not an emotion. It's a state of being. That you live in a state of being that you know that God loves you. Because if not, you should. And to be honest, I struggle with this too. But I should. Scripture is screaming at me. Tommy, God loves you all the time. 
and I should stand in that assurance. And this brings us to something beautiful in verse 17. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. See, the result of this love is that we have confidence but it's because of what he's done. I mean, think about this a minute. Is it easier to believe that someone loves you if they tell you or if they show you? This is not rhetorical. If they show you, right? It's easier, right? You can have people say, man, I love you, and then go on along their way, and you may say, oh, that's, that's great that they love me. But there's some people that don't say I love you enough or that you don't say I love you too en- enough that, that know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Why? It's because of the way that you live. It's the way that you interact with them. It's the things that you do. It's the actions that you take. And see, that's what scripture is telling us. We can be assured. Why? Because of the way that we live out our love, but also even more importantly, because it's all based in God's love, the way that he loved us in Christ. See, God's going to be true to his promise. Why? Look at what he's already done. He sought reconciliation first. He sent his son so that we, his enemy, may have life. He did this to pay for his own wrath so that we can live in him. And you don't think that God loves us? He has shown it. You know, those of you that were really, really into Christian music, Christian pop music in 1994, those of you who weren't born yet, do yourself a favor, hop on your streaming service on the way home and look this up. And for anybody else, I apologize. But, but I think about the song, DC Talk. That's right, I'm going there. Love is a verb. Y'all remember that song? Yeah, let's quote the great poet Toby Mack. <laughs> and if you want to say it with me, and you know, you can, because it's hard to resist. Pulling out my big black book, because when I need a word to find, that's where I look. So I move to the L's quick, fast, in a hurry. Throw my specs, because my vision was blurry. I looked again, but to my dismay, it was black and white with no room for gray. You see a big V stood beyond my word. And yo, that's when it hit me that love is a verb. That's right. I just did that in church. (laughs) But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Love is a verb. It's an action. That's how we know. We know God loves us because of the actions he took. Those around us should know that we love them because of the actions that we've taken. He first loved us, so we should love And when we do this, God's judgment is coming. Yes, absolutely. It is coming. But we who are in Christ do not live in fear because we have been assured that all of his future promises are yes and amen because of how he's already shown his love for us. And that is an amazing truth. Beloved, we do not live in fear because we are assured. The last thing, it kind of brings us back to where we started all of this. What are the results of this love? What is the result of this love? Well, looking at verse 20, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So in other words, if you can't love the people in front of your eyes, you you cannot have not loved God who you haven't seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
So what's the result of all of this? What's the result of the fact that God loved us first? What's the result of the fact of the way he showed his love in Christ? What's the result of the fact of all of this? It's that we are called to love each other. The result of the gospel working in your life is that we love each other. What does that mean? It means that when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, you should not leave not knowing that you're loved. Why? Because we should be an extension of God's love to each other. What does this mean? Well, it means that when the world looks at the people of Mars Hill, this church, Mars Hill Church, when we're looked at by the community, our our community should look and say, I don't agree with everything they say, but man, those people know how to love each other. And what is that? It's an apologetic. They're going to look at that and say, that's supernatural love. That's different love. The result of this is that different love, the, the way that we love, and it should point to Christ. See, see, the hope in this is not that we love so that we can grow Mars Hill. That honestly doesn't matter a whole lot. The purpose of this is that we love so that the kingdom of God can be grown and that Jesus Christ may be glorified through the way that we live, empowered by him. And this command to love at the end is interesting. Why should God command us to, why, why, why should God in his word through the compulsion of the Holy Spirit bring John to the place to write this? Because we enact our will on God giving us the ability to love. This is not passive. We engage our will in taking the ability that God has given us to love each other. It's something that we are a part of. And even more important than that, we get to be a part of. We get to be a part of God's expression of love to each other. So what do we take home from this? I think there are a few things that we need to make sure that we remember. Number one, you are loved. You are loved. If you're hurting in this room, if you're lonely in this room, if you're broken in this room, you are loved. If you're searching for acceptance, if you're searching for forgiveness, if you're searching for someone who will accept you, you are loved. God will take you. He gave his son for you. The Bible says that for God so loved the world in John 3, 16, you are loved. The world is loved. You are loved, beloved. You are literally called the beloved of God, those of us in Christ. You are loved. Remain in that. When days are hard, trust in that. Lean into that. Know that God has loved you selflessly, and he still does. The second thing that we have to take home from this is a question. Have you responded to that love? See, it's one thing to be loved, It's a whole nother thing to bend your knee and bow your head in submission to God and respond to that love. It's another thing to, as John said in his gospel, it's another thing to believe so that we may have life. And so the question is, have you responded to that love? If not, the Bible says today can be the day of your salvation. Have you responded to all of who Christ is? Have you responded to this gift of Christ given to us by the Father? Have you laid down your life and picked up his? Have you responded? And then the last is for those of us that are redeemed. Do we live out that love? Do you live out that love? 
Does your life reflect a gospel-transformed life? And I think if we're all honest, we may answer the question, not all the time. But I think that in this, in this, that there's this challenge, this command to love, that we pray that the Lord continue to grow his spirit in us so that we can share his love to the world around us. Pray that God gives you opportunities to show his love to each other as the body of Christ, but not just within the walls of Mars Hill, but the church universal, the church around the world. The churches in other countries that are, that are struggling, that worship in a different condition than we do freely here. That, that we pray that the Lord enable us to live out that love. That we may see this love for one another grow. That we as Mars Hill can be defined as a church that loves folks. Do we live out that love? So today, I think there's not really a more appropriate way to, to wrap up today's message that we see in 1 John than to celebrate that act, that, that action placed on the verb that is love, than to remember through the Lord's Supper. Now, remember that the Lord's Supper is for those that are redeemed, for those that are in Christ at Mars Hill. We do have an open communion, and so that if you are redeemed, you may take part. But this is not for those that are not in Christ. This is not for those who have not submitted their life to Christ. The Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians that you're actually drinking a curse onto yourself, eating and drinking a curse onto yourself. And so a condition is that you are in Christ, but there's also another condition laid out in 2 Corinthians that you take time to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, that you ask the Holy Spirit to look in all the corners and the crevices and the closets of your life and to expose sin that's unconfessed, and that you confess that sin first, that you repent from that sin, that you turn from that sin, that you give that up so that you can come and take this clean. And, and that's the best thing about this, is that God is not a God who holds grudges. Remember, he loved you first already. He will forgive you. He will move you to that place if you repent, if you bring that before him and say, God, I know that this is not of you. And, and I think that we do that, and I think that as a response to today's message, we do that in the broad sense, as we should every time. But I think also today that we should take the time to ask the Holy Spirit to examine how we love. If there's someone that, that you have an offense against, I'll ask the Lord to bring that to your mind so that you can be reconciled to your brother and sister. If, if there's someone that you have an, uh, an issue with, that, that you ask the Lord, bring this up so that we can love each other the way that we should. If you're struggling to love, use this time to pray that the Lord empower you, forgive you for the, for the times that you've messed up and empower you to move forward. Because to be honest with you, that's my prayer. I'm going to be completely honest with you. This has been so convicting to me because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are people in the body of Christ that have loved me better than I have loved in return. And man, is that convicting. But it's also encouraging to know that uh, that has been brought to my mind by God that I am forgiven and that I am empowered. So use this time to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life. So we're going to pray together, and when the Lord releases you, you can come and take of the elements.
God, thank you so much for your word. A word that simultaneously can crush us and lift us up at the exact same moment. That it's never condemnation. (laughs) That it's always that you are our power, that you are our strength, that you are what enables us to live out this life. God, I do pray specifically that you be with this body of Mars Hill, that you help us live out love in a way that shouts the name of your son to the world around us. Lord, I pray for the church collectively, the church universal, that we are known for our love, never, ever compromising the truth. that we love Lord I pray that we love in a way that the world looks at the church and says I know that they don't agree with me but man do those people love and when they ask us about it we can point them to you Lord I thank you so much for who you are Lord I pray that in this time of reflection that you examine our hearts Lord that you point out places of unconfessed sin in our life you bring us to a place by the power of your spirit of repentance Lord in this time if there's an offense that we've made against a brother or sister Lord I pray that you convict us of that and that you move us to a place of reconciliation with each other Lord I thank you so much that you love this first I thank you that you loved us sacrificially in giving your son Lord I thank you so much you give us the example to your love. And it's in the name of the Son that you gave as evidence of your perfect love for us that I pray these things.